I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to Countercurrents Radio. Today we're going to do something slightly new. I want to have a show where David Zuddy and I go through some prominent pieces from Countercurrents this past week and talk about them. We will also take your questions on any other current topics, any current things you want. We're not against the current thing. And we would like to see if this format gels and becomes something that we can do on a regular basis. The reason being that countercurrents is really wedded to the written word, the printed word, whether it's online or in books. I decided to do the countercurrents book club because we put out books and we're still going to be putting out a few books, even though it's going to be tapering off into the future. And we have a huge backlog of books that we could discuss. And so hence we're doing a monthly book club, but what about the other weekends, the other Saturdays in the month? Well, I thought one thing we could do is experiment with a format where we discuss what's been printed at countercurrents during that week, especially the articles that have gotten a lot of discussion. So without further ado, let's bring on David Zuddy. David, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here and happy Independence Day to all our patriots out there. Yes, it is Independence Day. It is January 6th. So what I would like to do first is uh, remind everybody that if you'd like to send a super chat through Entropy, Entropy is one way that you can help us out with a donation using a credit card. So go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents. It's on the banner across the bottom of the stream. And you can hit the green button. We're not streaming there, but you can still use them to send your question, comment, and donation. And we would very much appreciate it. So David, you wrote a piece called On Loyalty and Treason. And I think that that's quite relevant given that this is January 6th and many patriotic Americans have been accused of treason and been persecuted, been put in solitary confinement, been abused basically, uh, had, have, had the book thrown at them. Poor Ashley Babbitt, of course, died on January 6th. And yet these people are denigrated. These people are said to be traitors and insurrectionists. And you raise some really good questions in here. What does it mean to be loyal and what does it mean to be a traitor? And what is the most important object of loyalty? So I, I'd like you to just talk a bit about that. And if there are any questions and comments that have been posted about that, either at Countercurrents or show up in the threads here, if you could comment on those as well. Sure. So what kind of sparked this was the moral pontification of people, particularly on Twitter, where it's these people, these very ice cold, very holier than thou takes about treason and loyalty and insurrection. And the phenotype is, aside from the generic liberal phenotype, it's usually older people. It's usually these boomers, oftentimes in masks, who look very decrepit. It's the type of people, the old liberals I saw at Monterey County when I went there for a, for a thing. And they're just sad people. And it's just very fake. These are the same people who in 2020 were ACAB. And now they're clutching their proles about the Capitol Police who murdered Ashley Babbitt and shot munitions into the crowd to rile them up and who went along with the big lie after the after Biden was installed. So it's very strange. The only 
the, the, they go from a cab to bootlicking the cops because their only real principle is hating white people. But it's all very tedious. It's all very fake. And we should not allow them to gaslight us. You know, these were the same people who for years and years would counter signal uh, fireworks on the 4th of July because it was militaristic. This is usually at the height of the Iraq war and all that. Or they said that American flags on police vehicles are too militant. I think that happened in La Jolla or Del Mar, which are in Southern California and they're silly people. Again, the old, these old liberals basically. And now they're like full fire and fury to shoot the protesters. How they have changed. But they didn't change. They're just being anti-white and anti-American. They were always like this. And we really have to act like kind of liberals here and start deconstructing what this all means. Like, what is the Constitution? What's a, why, why do we even care about this? Why is this a higher point of reference? Should it be a higher point of reference? And really, the, the, the way that we think about the Constitution is blood and soil, the first 10 amendments. For the left, it's really a new thing. It's the post-Civil War Constitution with the ever-troublesome 14th Amendment, which has been used and abused and warped beyond all recognition. It's basically overkill to prevent slavery. It's nothing special. But it's been used for all this for the third constitutional founding during the Civil Rights era. So this is all fake. And really, we have to ask, well, what's an American? So how can we be a traitor when we're being loyal to our own people? That's a big thing. How And they can't go on about trees and all this when they talk about the Constitution. The Constitution was born out of a cesspool of treason and insurrection. There's no Now, you can love it or hate it, but there's no denying that this was betrayal. And they weren't always honest about it. In fact, I forget the book name, but it was a kind of a liberal take on the revolution. And I also read a book about Benedict Arnold and they, it was full on treason. They also strung the, the colonists along with kind of false promises. It, it was not, it was never a leftist thing that the leftist thing that they tried to create. But part of why Benedict Arnold was a traitor, but actually a loyalist if you're British was because George Washington, they, they kept changing the goalposts of the revolution and Part of this was, you know, corruption and money in his in his wife, who was kind of heinous. But a lot of it was that the the, rev, the founding fathers weren't fully honest with what they wanted, and they kind of dragged people along with them. And that's a historical fact. So this whole thing is is there's nothing to really pontificate about. Insurrection can be beautiful. It can be evil. It depends on why you're doing it. Like the I made a post today where the Hungarian uprising in 1956 and the their revolution in 1848 were totally insurrections. And you know what? They are now national holidays because they won out in the end. And it's because they identify with each other. These are Hungarian national holidays. It's like January 6th would be a national holiday for real Americans, or I guess from that meme about the TV show they're making, the Lord of the Rings Americans, as opposed to the Harry Potter Americans. That's what this really gets about in trying to really ask who we are. Because at that point, we bypass the Constitution might be a higher point of reference, but it is no longer the highest point of reference. The highest point of reference is our people, who we are, and also good. Mm -hmm. I think that you know, it, it, it's very true that there's a kind of cult around the Constitution. And the reason why there's been such a cult spun around the Constitution, I, I believe, is that 
the quality of statesmen in America has declined so dramatically since the founders that the most horrifying prospect we would have, have for most people is a new constitutional convention. Can you imagine Joe Biden getting together to preside over the creation of a new constitution? Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken and uh, all these clowns in the Congress uh, there would creating be a new constitution. They would need, need a lot of frequent ice cream breaks. Yeah. And uh, well, first of all, none of these people would actually come up with anything. Uh, it would, they basically would create a new constitution like they create new legislation. Namely, they're simply bought by extremely powerful forces in society. And of course, they can be swayed by riots and things like that too, or they'll use, they'll whip up riots themselves as tools to persuade the public. But it would be a farce. It would be an absolute farce. And we would end up with some kind of socialist people's republic on paper that would decline into something like Brazil or Mexico, even faster than we're already declining in that direction. And so it makes sense to sort of hallow the founders and, and treat their, their word as holy writ, because the idea of these new clowns uh, creating a new order is just terrifying. But of course, Joe Sobern once said it really well. He said, the U.S. Constitution is, presents no threat to our current form of government. And th that's true. We have a current form of government that might pay lip service to the Constitution when it's convenient. Libtards will do that. They will wave flags when it's convenient, but they just ignore it all the rest of the time when it gets in the way of what they wish. And yet it would be terrifying to people, but maybe it would actually be a good kind of terror if instead of just ignoring the constitution, but leaving it in place, they actually tried to change it. They actually tried to tear it up and create the People's Republic of the United States or something like that. Because one of the things that really strikes me about conservatives is their lack of imagination and their extreme superficiality. Most older American conservatives will be perfectly content with letting race replacement grind slowly to its ultimate end and America become a country, a third world country full of brown people, as long as they have the same flag and the same system of government. They are willing to allow the, the real substance of the nation to be completely hollowed out, completely replaced and corrupted and degenerated all the while in the process. But they would actually shed blood to keep the, the flag that we have. They would, they would get agitated about any attempt to change the American flag. And, and that I just think is, well, it's, it's childish. It's depressingly childish of them and superficial of them. And maybe the people who want this process to go forward aren't so foolish as to get these people riled up. They know that if they just leave them alone, they'll all slowly die out and be replaced. And we, they won't, you know, they won't raise a, a 
peep about it. They won't fuss about it. This is why I think that liberals should shut up about guns. The only reason that most Americans would exercise their Second Amendment rights against the government is if the government tried to do away with the Second Amendment. They would never use guns to defend the First Amendment or the Third Amendment or the Fourth or anything else or anything about the actual substantive issues, the things that constitute American liberty and and good government. They would not take up arms to defend those things. But they would take up arms if you try to take away their arms. And so the, you know, the armed populace performs no actual function. And it doesn't you know, uh, threaten the current system of government in any way. It's like the rest of the Constitution. The Second Amendment and the armed populace are no threat to our current form of government as long as they leave these people with their guns right? If you leave them with their guns, they'll, they'll cling to their guns and Bibles and they'll get older and grayer and die and be replaced. And you'll hear not a peep from them about that unless you try and take away their, their guns because they've made a fetish of the second amendment and they don't care about anything else. That's really of substance. They don't care about the people and they don't even care about the rest of the laws in the constitution all that much. Yeah. And it looks like uh, Ron DeSantis actually tried to get around this issue kind of sneakily. And he actually did something good instead of just infighting with Donald Trump. He started some, because the way you get around this is a well-organized militia. That's the way you would do it in a platonic republic. In practice, that's not really possible because we can't trust normal people to not be entrapped by the feds. It's just, it's a no-go idea right now. But you, what you do is that you marry it with state power. And that's the way you really do a militia today. And DeSantis created this thing called the Florida State Guard. And you have and these people, this really just, just hammers home the argument that conservatives are kind of useless. Yet all these people go crying off to journalists. Please forgive me for using such a vulgar world as journalist on our podcast. And they were crying about this because it was militaristic. It wasn't what they expected. And here's the thing. Some of these people were older. They were Purple Heart veterans. And this was like a very, became a very militaristic thing with yelling at people and push-ups. They, even though they were treated harshly, they should have just shut up and walked away and put two and two together and understood DeSantis is building an army. Just shut up and be quiet. This isn't proper how they were treated at all. It was very disrespectful, but the idea is great. And, you know, DeSantis could have equipped these people with helicopters, machine guns, organized them, and most importantly, more importantly than anything else, given them a flag of legitimacy so that they cannot be infiltrated. There is a clear chain of command. The state is involved. You cannot pull a Governor Whitmer hoax on these people, but they are more organized and better armed than any of these little kind of like goofy militias full of people who can't shave their face and are usually fat sometimes. That's the way to do it. But then all these conservatives start whining about how it's so bad. And it's like, come on, guys, we need to grow up here. He is finally doing something cool and you have to ruin it because it's it's mean. Oh, no. What did you expect? This is wonderful. And kind of springboard off of that a, the about, lose, about conservatives being losers. 
is the latest article by Christian Secor, my friend and January 6th hero who sat in Mike Pence's chair. He wrote an article about about how basically we need to embrace futurism because conservatism is a failed ideology. And it's true, if we cling to what it is now, we basically don't get anything. We have maybe a tax cut, maybe slightly less immigration, but this is a failed strategy. It is ultimate, all the conservatives are still classical liberals, hence ultimately liberal and doomed to fail, and they're just gonna play along with the left. Why not do something that's about speed and a bright future? Now, isn't this like edgy stuff? Maybe about, what about sci-fi cities or uh, a fertility program like Hungary has for get our birth rates up? You know, we'll make pe people who are made in America get, to get our GDP up and not import foreigners who hate us and bring the GDP down in the long term. That'd be great. But no, even Trump, I think actually January 6th was one of the best things to happen because it, it realized, even though it was absolutely horrible for people like Christian and the other defendants and their friends and family, it really brought home just how evil the regime is. And it, I, I think it's helping conservatives get hard and to play hardball and also help the youth to get radical and futuristic. We cannot cling to Reaganite stuff. We need to get excited and have new ideas. Because right now the left has new ideas, but they're all really stupid ideas. Why don't we have good ideas that are new? And that's really the way forward is, is, you know, we can maybe pay homage to the Constitution, but not get wrapped up by it. But we need to make, have our brand new ideas. Like, this is an exciting time where stuff is in flux. We shouldn't be clinging to the past. Like, oftentimes I, I lose, I get rather frustrated with people who LARP like it's 1933 and have a overbearing Third Reich fetish. I'm not going to counter signal it. There's definitely stuff to take from that time. But clinging to 1776 is less geographically far away than that kind of cargo cult team. Like if we, if we do the thing, we'll, we'll get the third Reich. Or if we do the thing, we get the American revolution. Like Alex Jones says, 7076 will recommence. Well, 7076 is temporally vastly removed from where we are at. 1933 is a lot closer. And so being stuck in the past, as much as I honor the American heritage, I think there's a lot of good stuff to learn from the American revolution trying to cargo cult and cling to it and simply rehash ideas that are no longer valid or appropriate or which outright failed, like an uh, inordinate focus on individual rights as opposed to collective rights. That's not the way forward. That's a way to defeat. We have to start being creative. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's a, it's a fine article that was also published this week by Christian Secor. Folks, if you have questions, send them along. Send them along in the chat at Odyssey. You can also send them in the DLive chat and you can send them through Entropy. There are a couple of Entropy donations here. Rumble Fox has sent hundred US dollars. This is on the first. And he says, thanks for all the content in 2023. Well, thank you very much. We'll apply that hundred dollars to the 2024 fundraiser campaign. North Country Friend has written in with 120 US dollars. This is in support of your annual fundraiser and in thanks for Countercurrents Radio. Happy 2024 to the CC team. Thank you very much. $120, that'll get you a year behind our paywall. So please write to orders at counter-currents.com, counter-currents.com, orders at countercurrents.com, and claim that. Just bring, bring it to their attention in the office that you bought a paywall. And we'll get you set up with a paywall subscription. And we very much appreciate it. Thank you. Norse Nacer has just donated one di diamond over at DLive. Thank you very much. Go ahead, David. 
Yeah, so going back to, to my article about the whole loyalty and treason thing, for a long time there was a meme going around where atheists and liberals would try to use Christian morality to guilt trip Christians into stuff like, it's usually about immigration. And there was a really good meme that said something along the lines of, I don't believe in this any of this stuff, but maybe you'll do what I say if I bring it up. And I forget how exactly it went, but I think eventually someone needs to make a meme about that, about the whole, you know, flag waving. Whenever a liberal waves an American flag instead of a rainbow flag, they want something. It's not yeah. sincere. These people think yeah. fireworks are, are evil. Don't trust them. So it's like something like, I hate, I don't believe in the Constitution. I hate its founders. I hate you. But if I wave this piece of paper with magic words on it, maybe you'll do what I say and, and be a good little slave and fight my wars. And this really ties into an issue that I'm always harping on about, perhaps the point of being obnoxious, but I'm going to continue doing it because it's so necessary, which is a boycott of enlisting in the military. All these liberals have said that they hate Ashley Babbitt and they, they hate her. She deserved to die. Uh, that means they'd be willing to kill us too. So you know what? Okay, fine then. Thank you for finally being honest. You guys are usually completely insincere and liars. But finally, we have some honesty from the left. They're finally telling us how much they hate us. And, you know, thank you for your candor. I think we're going to sit out World War III. If that happens, and it might, or if there's a global conflict, we're not going to list. We're not going to go fight off your wars. There'll be no onward Republican soldiers war cry that will work on us. You're on your own. You're on your own, kiddo. And you can use your diversity hires. I know people always bring up the, the concern that they are going to flood the ranks with immigrants who hate us. It, this is a lost cause. One patriot in a highly rigid organizational structure has no power to save their people if, if something bad were to happen. So that's just a lost cause. Just, you're just putting them in danger. Let them be incompetent. Like there is that one story about the Alaska Airlines with a door flying off of it in mid-flight that was totally new. Let this be the American military. We can basically delete airplanes and tanks and all that by not participating. Let them be incompetent and destroy themselves. Like War is no longer about digging a trench, despite how trench warfare has made a comeback. You need people. Like even We made fun of the maintainers in the Air Force of being kind of stupid. But actually, they're pretty smart. Too. They're working on multi-million dollar engines. You can't be as brain dead as we made them out to be. And you know what? Let, let Sergeant let Sergeant Shaniqua mess up the jet engine, and just let it happen. And let them they they need to sleep in the bed they have made, and let them come begging for us. And just this is how we'll repay them, and we'll bring down the global American empire by doing it. I think that's a very good idea. Ashley Babbitt was a military veteran, and. I was seeing these truly nasty people on Twitter saying she should have known the price of treason, you know, death, you know. These people absolutely salivate for blood when it comes to gunning down patriots and jailing them after January 6th. What's odd is that the people who are most bloodthirsty, they aren't the young ones. It's all these old farts and senile yeah. like NPR listeners. So who are they going to unleash upon us? I like. I think all the young people, they just don't care. They're like, where is my student debt relief? Which is good because if they did try to sick them on us, they just would ask, you know, they would get very bored real quick and be like, how does, how, why is this a problem? I want to go home and play Xbox. Right. You can shut down an entire military base, uh, an entire air force base, an airfield by losing a wrench 
leaving a bolt laying around. This Zoomer generation, are they going to be, you know, drafting Zoomers and, you know, these the spoiled people who want to, who just want a game and expecting them to fight and die? What they're going to get is they're going to get lots of malingering. They're going to get sabotage, intentional and unintentional. It's not going to work. Uh, and uh, I don't know what they're counting on, but I've been saying this for 30 years or even longer now, whenever I see mostly libtards, but also conservatives doing something stupid that in the long run will only destroy the country. And I always ask them, what are they counting on? What are they counting on to save them? And the truth is, is that they don't think that far ahead. They don't think that far ahead. And part of that's just human nature because most people are short-sighted. Long time horizons are as rare as extremely high IQs. Most people on average don't think that far ahead, but it's been reinforced by this ideology that we call liberalism because liberalism basically says in its kind of Adam Smith classical formulation that modern liberals accept more of than they might be willing to admit. Adam Smith basically said that it's not through the benevolence of people that we have plenty in the marketplace. It's through their selfishness. And you can apply that more generally. You, you, you look at the American founders. Modern republicanism is based on the idea that you can harness vice to create good government factionalism, competition, balance of powers and stuff like that. These people have the idea that you can have a world where you have petty people who are only thinking about their self-interest, which of course ends with their lives. They don't even think that far ahead. They're, they're thinking their short-term self-interest. They're not thinking of their long of the long-term they're not thinking of future generations. They're not thinking of the whole. They're not thinking of the common good at all. But they're told they don't have to do that because there's some magical force, as if by an invisible hand, right, where everything will come out all right. And so modern liberalism basically just says, be petty, be greedy, be self-interested, sell your vote, sell legislation, let the pharmaceutical industry regulate itself. What possibly could go wrong? If we're all selfish and careerist and just think about the short term, the big picture will take care of itself. That's the insanity of the modern liberal mentality. And so what are they counting on? They're counting on magic, basically, to make this all work. And that's irrational. That's a fall. That's folly. We have to go back to the idea that there is a common good of society that wise people can discern that they should be in power and that they should use the state to actively pursue the common good of the nation. That's, uh, that's the only way we're going to deal with the, you know, deal with the problems that we're facing and secure the welfare of our people and secure the welfare of the world. But liberalism is just blind to that. It's they're blind to it on principle and blindness isn't a virtue. 
Nope. And speaking about that, how we need to kind of have a critical look at the founding fathers, we can definitely take the good stuff that they did. But we, I think a second constitutional convention would be a great idea. I've been reading a book called Splitsville USA. I wrote an article responding to a review of it by another law professor. So I wanted to read the actual source material. It's been very good so far. And I think having, if we were to split into, I would prefer five states, or if we were to have two states, I prefer five, of course, but if each state, or I guess successor state or new nation, had to have a constitutional convention, that would actually be a huge way to increase accountability and representative government. Because at that point, the ruling powers of these new nations could no longer point at a document and say, obey me. It's this thing you have to go along with. It's antiquated now, date, but just do it. They would have to get all their legitimacy and all their popular support for the system by making a good system. They couldn't rest upon their laurels or really George Washington's laurels. Like this is simply ridiculous. Why they're allowed to rest in the laurels of a man which they secretly or not so secretly despise. So you'd have to get buy-in from the citizenry. You would have to make a system that actually is responsive to them and excites them. I think if we were to have a new constitutional you know, make a new constitution, basically, we would have to get rid of the winner-take-all system. That'd be my number one target, because I want a parliamentary democracy. As much as I don't like mass democracy, I think a limited polity would be good. And the best way to do that would be a parliament where you can have, like in Europe, all level, like five or more parties all competing at once. That way, each faction can get a vote, or they get some representation, or they can possibly get into power actually how their voice heard. The winner-take-all system is very toxic because it was supposed to prevent factionalism. All it did was create a one-party state. Two parties is very close to one party. And what's dangerous too is that because it's a winner-take-all system, it's do or die. So what we're forced to do is that we're forced to embrace extremists on both sides of the aisle. The left, to fight us, has to embrace all these weird trans people because they need their energy or the people they influence to fight the big bad Republicans. And then we, we have to embrace all these people who are kind of like a little, kind of like religious nut jobs about abortion because we need their energy and numbers and people to fight the crazy left. But parliamentary system that would have a diffuse that. So that's why I think a new con constitutional convention would be exciting. We have all these, we could actually make a government that would re represent us and be fun and engage the populace. And when politicians couldn't get away with simply pointing at a piece of paper and say and obey me, they'd have to actually be responsive and be accountable and rest upon their own laurels. Yeah, but we're never going to get that from the current crop of clowns. Uh, uh, Jason Kessler is here. Let me add him to the stream. Jason, can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, there's a bit of background noise. Uh, Jason, Jason wrote an article that we published earlier this week on Christian nationalism and how it's made an agnostic out of him. And it's gotten quite a lot of comments. And so I asked him if he could drop in to talk about it, to just drop into the stream. And so it's a nice surprise to have you here. David, if you don't mind, we could we should switch to Jason's uh, um, piece because he's got a limited time frame. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. So, Jason, uh, your your thesis was... was uh, you know, kind of so surprising, uh, and but it was well argued, and it got a lot of commentary going. Do you want to just state basically what your point was, and then maybe we can talk about some of the issues it raises? 
Sure, uh, but let me just give a little bit of an explainer for you and for the audience about my present situation. I am on the road to West Virginia and there is snow everywhere and there are tractor trailers and accidents everywhere. I'm trying to, I'm driving very slow and I'm in a four uh, wheel drive truck, but uh, I'm going through West Virginia. So if my signal drops out or, you know, I have some kind of road issue, uh, then you're just gonna have to take over. Uh, and I might be a little bit distracted here, but uh, here goes. Basically, uh, I've been watching as uh, the white nationalist sphere has evolved, let's say, since uh, the heyday of the alt-right, which had a lot of skeptics and Christians together in the movement towards something that is more of a chauvinistic Christian nationalism. And um, throughout my life, I've struggled with uh, faith. I've, I've been uh, a Christian. I've been a militant atheist at different points in my life. I would describe myself more as a agnostic right now. And, um, oh shoot, the, my car, my truck is swabbling around. This is so dangerous. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it right now, unfortunately, Greg. I'm sorry. Oh, that's uh, that's totally fine. You, we don't want to lose a valued contributor to the movement uh, because we're, yeah, we're we're distracting you. It, it might even be illegal what we're doing. Uh, uh, no, to not to talk. I'm, I've got my headphones on. It's Bluetooth, but yeah, it's just not okay. safe. I'm sorry. Okay, no, no problem. Uh, well, hey, it was it was a good idea to to try and get you to drop by, but it just didn't work out. Let's do this again another time. Yep. Sounds good. Have a good one. Okay, see you around. Yep, good operational risk management. Yes. Well, folks, this is live radio for you, right? These sort of things couldn't be scripted. It never happened if it were scripted. So anyway, uh, Jason, we'll have him back. We'll have him back definitely to talk about some of his other stuff. Uh, he's going to be writing more regularly for us at Countercurrents in 2024. Uh, why don't we talk about my recent piece, I did a two-part thing, one in the last week of 2023, and then I published part two uh, this week called Havens in a Heartless World. The first part's on the family, and the second part is on the homeland. And I'm kind of self-conscious about these two pieces because I was sort of struggling to articulate some things, and I'm not 100% satisfied with it. But the goal was simply to try and get people to understand that the family and the homeland have a logic to them, a moral logic, if you will, that is not liberal, that cannot be understood in liberal terms, that is dissolved or undermined or corrupted if you try and force them uh, to follow liberal norms. And that we really have to just expand our moral and political vocabulary, our moral and political imaginations to understand what it is to be a member of a family and a member of a homeland. At the core of liberalism, at the core of modern liberalism, uh, especially the sort of libertarian extreme versions of it, is the rejection of the idea of any unchosen obligations. 
The only obligations that you have are obligations that you choose to have. That, that's the core idea. Now, that presupposes that you are a mature, rational agent, right? And that you're surveying all these sorts of options and deciding whether or not these options suit you and whether or not you want to get involved with these things or not. And they have to basically be in your self-interest if you want to get involved with these things. And if they're not in your self-interest or they sort of no longer serve your self-interest, you can drop them. There's an easy entry, easy exit model here. And you have no obligations to other people or institutions, to groups, to individuals that you don't choose to get into. And this just comes to a screeching halt. It just hits a brick wall. Unfortunately, it barrels right on through the brick wall and often undermines the whole building. But this liberal mentality that unchosen obligations are per se immoral and illegitimate hits a brick wall when it comes to birth, gestation, birth. Nobody chooses to be born. Nobody chooses their family. Nobody chooses their homeland. Nobody chooses their mother language. These things are done for us. These things are imposed upon us. And our parents, our parents might not have chosen to have us. We might have been an inconvenience. We might have come along at the wrong time. And they didn't get to choose all of our features either. I'm sure that if they could have chosen, we would have all been different. We would have been better, right? We would have minded them. We would have listened or we would have been taller or whatever. They, you know, Parents don't get to choose to have kids oftentimes, and they don't get to choose their kids' traits. Kids don't get to choose their parents or their, the time they're born in, anything like that. And if you want to view that from the gimlet eye of liberal individualism, well, that's an outrage. There's something wrong with that. There ought to be a law. The idea that you could be thrown into a world without your consent, it just seems obnoxious. There's actually a monstrous idea that's creeping forward in law called wrongful life suits, where people sue their parents for having them, for not aborting them. They treat it as, as some sort of crime that they were brought into existence, as if there's any choice in this matter. They're trying to exert retroactive choice about whether or not they were born. And it's, it's just impossible. The only way can, they can do that is just to uh, basically sue their parents for giving birth to them. But of course, the, the thing that's most an attempt to recast natality, birth, in liberal terms is abortion, right? Suddenly the idea of an un, that if you get pregnant, you don't have an obligation to sustain the life of the child that's growing inside you. That's what abortion says. Uh, it's a monstrous thing. But 
What if it's an unwanted child? In the past, people said, tough luck, learn to want it, right? Uh, but what if you don't want it? Well, you don't have to have it anymore. And so, you know, liberalism undermines the logic of the family. And since the nation properly understood is just a, an extended family, it undermines the logic of the nation as well. But when you're born, your parents have obligations to you. They didn't choose necessarily to have you. They didn't choose to have the particular person that you turned out to be. That was just a random, you know, in mixing of their DNA. But traditionally speaking, that doesn't matter. They've got obligations to you and you have obligations to them. You, they have to nurture you. You have to be grateful basically and, and, uh, mind them, obey them and honor them. Right. And the same is true with the nation. You come out of it, out of your nation, out of your ethnic group, out of your tribe into the world, and they have obligations to nurture you and you have obligations to basically while you're a minor to do what you're told and be good about it. And then when you've grown up, you can start reciprocating a bit, but you can't fully reciprocate. You can't pay off the debt of existence to somebody. I mean, how can you even do that? And so there's, there's just simply a moral logic here that liberals can't understand and liberalism undermines. And the reason why we should object to this insidious corruption of the family and the nation is that the liberal world is actually a rather heartless and cruel and, and destructive place. And we should have some refuges from it. We should have havens from it. And there's a wonderful book it's actually a very dense book, but the idea of it is wonderful. It's a book by Christopher Lash called Haven in a Heartless World, The Family Under Siege. And basically his point is that the family is a haven from the world of liberalism, the world of the marketplace. It's also the world of bureaucracy, it, the, the modern world, if you will. And at the core of that modern world is basically, again, the idea that unchosen obligations are meaningless and that you are, as an independent individual are not obligated to anybody or anything that you don't choose to. Now, that sounds wonderful, right? Until you realize that they're not obligated to you either. And what that means is that everybody's status in this kind of society is dependent upon the goodwill of everybody else. You don't come into the world with a secure status. You're not born into a caste or into a tribe or into a family where you have a birthright and a certain amount of security just as a, by virtue of being born. You go out into the world of liberalism, in the world of the market, and you have to prove yourself. You have to sell yourself. And that means that however you do, you constantly have to please other people because if, if you displease them, they have no obligations to you. They can drop you like that. And so there's an insecurity that goes along with that. 
Uh, if your status is entirely dependent on the goodwill of others, that means that you're insecure. And if you're trying to climb the greasy pole, what do you therefore feel inclined to do? Well, you feel inclined to please other people, not just in your job, but in every possible way. You're not just judged on your schoolwork or your job performance, you're judged on your character and your ideas. And so liberal individualism creates an incentive for a society of nervous, status con conscious, insecure people who are trying to conform to one another. And they're trying to conform to the people who are trying to conform to them. They're trying to get the good, the good graces of people who are trying to get their good graces. There's a certain emptiness to it. And it, it doesn't encourage the best kind of character. And wouldn't it be nice to have a place where we don't have to worry about pleasing everybody all the time, where our status is unconditional, where we have some kind of unconditional love or at least consideration? Wouldn't it be nice to get away from that? That's why the family is a haven from the liberal world. And that's why the homeland can also be that. A nation is a biological entity. It's an extended family united by a common history, by a common identity, a common language, customs, and so forth. And you, you're born out of your parents and born out of your nation at the same time. And you, you have a status that just comes from being born that is not as contingent and endlessly renegotiable as your status in, in the marketplace or in liberal society, which is basically a society that's recast entirely on that market model. And so why would you want to go without that kind of security? If you have a, a, a place where you can be yourself, that's a, that's a great refuge. Also beyond that, the marketplace doesn't really encourage virtues like solidarity with others. It encourages self-seeking and individualism. The classical virtues, solidarity, patriotism, and things like that, those are not the virtues of the atomized market man. So I, I was trying to get that out on paper and make it clear because what we need to do is understand how liberalism, which is now going global in the form of globalizing capitalism, is a threat to the nation as well as the family. And one of the points that I make at the end of this piece is that the great replacement is really baked into what we call civic nationalism. Real nationalism means birthright nationalism. You are born into a people. And for a people to really flourish in the world, they need a territory. And beyond that, they need to control their territory. They need to have a nation state. Whereas civic nationalism is the idea that if you simply enter some zone that's administered by some state and profess certain ideas, and you are certified by the state that governs it, that you can become a member of a nation, right? It's a, it's a civic form of nationalism as opposed to a biological form of nationalism. And civic nationalism goes hand in hand with liberal capitalist ideology because 
it denigrates, and liberal capitalist ideology denigrates the idea of any kind of birthright. Oh, you were simply born here. You didn't earn your citizenship. You didn't choose your citizenship. You, you hear that, that language, choosing something makes it better than just inheriting it, or earning something is better than inheriting it. And what, what that means is by these standards, immigrants are more authentic citizens than the people who are actually born there because immigrants choose and immigrants do work, right? To become citizens. Whereas you lazy layabouts who were just born there, you do nothing. What did you do, do to deserve America? That's a very dangerous idea. And the, and the great replacement is baked right into it. So if we're going to defend ethno-nationalism, we have to realize that we can't really do that adequately by thinking in liberal terms entirely. It's also very anti-traditional because if you look at a lot of the great myths of the past and a lot of even modern uh, fantasy fiction, birthright is everything. The hero always has, how many heroes do we know of who have some ancient lineage or actually the son of a king or whatever, or of a god? And this is thrust upon them. They don't always know it at first, but there are a lot of, almost all these great stories involve birthright, something or another, or fate. So it, this whole existential thrownness, as it will, is very sub subversive. And a lot of, and I'm going to get, and too, if you look at some of these esoteric texts, like about alchemy or whatever, or certain like obscure mystery cult hymns, they'll, the, the initiate will declare his divine lineage. Like, I am the son of heaven and of the earth. I've come to restore my birthright. And it's like, this is some guy in late antiquity, uh, probably not literally, but there is a metaphysical reality that he's speaking to about birthright. And he's claiming his will, and he actually has to fight the gods and bellow at them and all this. And this is very esoteric, but really undercuts the how utterly subversive and modern this this existential thrownness and obsession with choices. And if you don't mind me getting a little bit more esoteric, a lot of this, we don't actually, people aren't free. And people talk about their freedom of, to, cho to choose. The terrifying reality is that people are born into the world viciously enslaved to their desires and biological requirements. You have to eat because your stomach orders you to and the laws of nature. If you don't, you're going to die and you'll be hangry beforehand. When people like stuff, well, are they, that's not a choice. Like I like my peas and carrots. I like chocolate. Well, there's something in me that I didn't choose that forces me, urges me on, whips me almost to eat my chocolate or which likes to run. So I'm forced to do this. And you think because you like it, it's free choice, but it's not. Or people who are maybe on the straight and narrow path and very religious, or you have degenerate drug addicts, sometimes they, they, they change, but all they're doing is changing masters. They're changing a bad master for a good master, hopefully. But they're still not ultimately in charge. So therefore, this is the lunar path. The people who are truly unconditioned to make their own choices, those are solar. And those are those have always been rare. In the Kali Yuga, it's even rarer because to get to that, there's a lot of danger involved. I won't go into that. But this whole no, notion that you're free and choice is good, well, free choice is predicated upon the idea that you're free and you're not free. And when people are allowed to be, quote, free, it just means that they're free to obey their worst demons instead of their better angels. They need guidance. They need to have someone help choose a good master or control their baser urges or to develop their better urges. So this whole thing is completely subversive and anti-traditional. 
And two, I really do believe that there is a prenatal existence. You do some may the, the the person is multifaceted. It's not just one thing, but some part of you chose to be here with these genes, this time and place, with these this manner of astrology, and that's your karma. You just have to work it out. You don't like it? Well, part of you wanted this actually. So I think Bap, you know, he has somewhat discredited himself this past week. He did in Bap book talk about how people who have misfortunes. We shouldn't pity them because that's actually part of their nature. They actually was some cosmic thing. And maybe he's just making that up. He might have just been like train of thought, random Nietzsche, edgy stuff for all we know when he wrote that book or maybe high. I don't know. But it's true. You need to just deal with it. Like you've been dealt a hand. It's actually part of who you are. Embrace it and love it. Don't try to fight it. There's a very strong tradition that comes out of, uh, well, it comes out of ancient philosophy. Uh, you see this first formulated actually in Plato's Gorgias that you can call the, the idea of positive liberty. Positive liberty as opposed to negative liberty. And Socrates formulates it very well. He says, what is freedom? Is freedom doing what you really want? Or is freedom doing what you think you want at the present time? And that, that means that there, there can be two wills in you, right? And one is more fundamental than the other. And the real freedom for him is doing what we really want. And what we really want is to live well, to flourish. It's some form of self-actualization when you get right down to it. There's this drive for self-actualization. And that's what we are, we are following. That's what we really want to do. However, we also have what we think we want to do at any given moment. And oftentimes the things that we think we want to do at any given moment are incompatible with what we really want. And yet modern liberalism and the liberalism of their time, frankly, would define freedom as the ability to do whatever you feel like in the moment, right? They would even say that that's authentic. I'm being, being authentic to who I am in the moment, which basically just means following whatever whim you have. Well, unfortunately, sometimes those whims are not consistent with your long-term well-being, which is what you really want. So liberalism, by giving people the opportunity to basically worship their whims, to do whatever they feel like in the moment, actually makes people less free. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau drew the conclusion out of this and, and formulated it in a very provocative and paradoxical way in his book on the social contract, where he argues that if freedom is doing what you really want to do, then you can be forced to be free. What does that mean? If freedom is doing what you really want to do, but you spend your time doing what you think you want to do, basically enslaved by your passions, by trends, by whims, by social convention and, and things like that. If you do what you think you want to do, but not what you really want to do, that's not freedom, that's slavery. And so, the, and so the freedom of liberalism is a kind of slavery. And 
the state can rescue you from that and force you to be free. They can force you to stop doing the silly stuff that gets in the way of self-actualization and make you get what you really want. And that's what true freedom is. I actually agree with that argument. Liberals are scandalized by it. There's a whole industry of conservative critics, uh, classical liberal conservative critics of Rousseau who are constantly pointing and soy-facing at Rousseau. Sounds like Richard Hanania, something that he'd jump on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they, they point and they stutter and they gasp. Oh, my God, you can be forced to be free. Uh, it's totalitarianism. No. What it is, it's an argument for paternalism, but it's not totalitarianism. And it's, it's actually a very powerful critique of liberalism. It's a powerful critique of the kind of liberalism that basically says, oh, you should just let everybody make their own mistakes. You should let everybody do what they want to do. That's how people are happy if, they, if they're just allowed to do what they want. Freedom, you know, trademark. That's modern liberalism. And that is a kind of, kind of slavery. It's a kind of slavery to social conventions and trends, which are manufactured oftentimes by corporations or by even more sinister people who are trying to profit from them. And it's a slavery to your passions, to your desires. And it gets in the way of you being a fully actualized person. And that's what you really want, right? So we will take away your cigarettes. We're gonna take away your crack, take away your crack pipe, Poor Hunter Biden. Poor Hunter Biden. And we're going to force you to be a human being. That's what paternalism says. And there's a powerful argument for that that goes from Plato's Gorgias to Rousseau's book on the social contract. And you find it also in Hegel's book, The Philosophy of Right, which is a work of political philosophy that very much influences me. So anyway, and some of the ideas that I'm trying to uh, articulate in those two essays. They're, they're influenced by the philosophy of right. They're my attempt to approach that in a slightly different way, I, I would say. Because what Hegel argues in the philosophy of right is that you have to understand that there are three realms of society and they have their own logics and, and they cannot be reduced to one another. And the three realms of society are the family, civil society, which for him includes the market economy, the world of liberalism, and the state. They all have different logics. They can't be reduced to one another. And any attempt to reduce one to the other always does it violence. And you can't totalize any of these realms. You can't have a nanny state. You can't have a planned market or things like that, they all do violence to one another if they're totalized. And so you've got to figure out how to give each realm its place and prevent them from encroaching upon one another. And that's a very powerful argument, but it's also very difficult to articulate what's going on there. Hegel uses the language of the dialectic, which is notoriously... Uh, <laughs> notoriously difficult to understand. But anyway, I'm going to be doing more writing about this in the, in the coming years. I especially want to write a long essay on Hegel's philosophy of right. I wrote a long essay on 
Aristotle's Politics, which is a very important work for my political thinking. It's up at Countercurrents. Uh, I'm going to write a similar essay on the philosophy of right and another essay about Machiavelli. So anyway, those are some things to come. Let's see if there's some questions here. I don't want to be just filibustering here. Um, okay, uh, let's go to entropy. ABC is written in with 10 US dollars. Thank you very much. If you could change the outcome of one moment in history, what would be the most beneficial for white nationalism today? What would your choice be? Maybe the fall of Constantinople, the Reformation, Gettysburg, Stalingrad, Civil Rights Movement, Charlottesville, January 6th, or something else. Uh, I don't know. I, I would prevent Abraham from setting out from Ur. That might be the most beneficial thing for white nationalism today. David, what are your thoughts? Is there some historical event that's more important than others for uh, our situation that if we could prevent it, we'd be so much better off? I would say the Battle of Manzikert, if that's the correct name, because that is what lost the Byzantine Empire, the heartland of Anatolia, which was essentially white or off-white, at least, for most of its history. It's really more of an extension of Europe than the Middle East. But after that battle, Byzantium lost, or probably the Eastern Roman Empire, if we, we want to be respectful here, lost their heartland, which is like Texas. And if they had kept that, it would have been a lot different. I think the Middle Eastern politics would be different. There would have been a, a white super state. And yes, there, this is, it would have been somewhat anti-nationalism. I know in your book on imperialism, I mean, against imperialism, there is a problem that the Eastern Roman Empire ruled over a bunch of other ethnicities like Bulgarians and all that and various Balkan tribes. But if you better be ruled by a white empire than a Turkish empire, as what happened after the Ottomans eventually took Constantinople. But really, it's that battle that would have prevented the Turks from becoming, you know, basically becoming the new Roman Empire. They did have a claim to it because even though they weren't Roman, I mean, they took over the capital of Eastern Rome and took over its heartland. So it's the meme of, look at us, we're the real, real Romans now. Everyone did it. But yeah, that could... the. We could have had, I don't know, a Byzantium going to space, uh, Eastern Roman Empire intervening in the Russian Revolution. The possibilities are endless. Although this may have retarded exploration out into the West, into the New World, because of the spice trade not being cut off. But who knows? I think the wanderlust of the Germanic people would have taken them out West anyways, eventually, one way or another. But a close runner-up would be somebody, frankly during the American Revolution, just sidelining George Washington and making himself a king and created, creating a alternative to a lot of the issues in America or making it so that the Freemasonry and all their silly ideas had less impact or making the Freemasons to actually be the deep state that they wanted, that they were, but never fulfilled. Because if they actually had this weird mystery cult pulling strings and all that. It would have been actually really cool. We, we could have had a deep state that defended our interests instead of becoming simply a proxy for Judaism, which is what Freemasonry became. And some people say it was always like that. I think there was a split between the Illuminati and the proper Freemasons. But that would have been nice to actually have a deep state for real that understood power and actually safeguarded Anglo-Saxondom and our ideas of liberty and did not allow the, the, the industrialists to take over and all that, and the power of wealth to destroy the revolutionaries and their big ideas. But 
that's a big if. And I think the battle bands occurred is a lot more realistic. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. We have another question about Constantinople. This is from Dino. It's in the Odyssey chat. He says, Christian nationalism, re-Christian nationalism, would Constantinople still exist, exist if Byzantine Rome was pagan? Meaning, would the Roman Empire have never fallen if it hadn't gone Christian? Well, Gibbon certainly thought that the, that the empire was done in by Christianity, but honestly, there were a lot of very negative trends that had been in, in motion for a very long time before Christianity became the state religion. And I think a lot of those trends simply continued under Christianity. And it took a long time for the empire to expire in the West. It took much longer for it to cease to exist in the East. We, we forget that the Roman Empire ended in 1453. That's a long run. And it had ch changed its religion more than a thousand years before. Would it have continued with paganism still intact? Would it have gone beyond that? I just don't know. Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, David, what are your thoughts? So a big question here is, would, would the West also be pagan or not? If they, if the West was Christian, they would have had crusades directed at Constantinople and it would have been wiped off the map a lot quicker. If the West was pagan or a different form of Christianity that was more of a mystery cult, or if there were various mystery cults all competing, I don't know. I think the issues that they faced were not really religious in a, in a way Religion was always causing problems in the Eastern Roman Empire and the late Western Empire because of heresy, because that gave everyone an easy pretext to rebel. So on one hand, Christianity helped to, to consolidate the state, but then it also undermined it because someone could say, well, you have the wrong interpretation of Jesus. And it came down to really petty stuff like, like Christology comes down to, is Jesus the same, different, or similar substance as the Father? This sounds like not a big deal. And Jesus didn't talk about it at all directly. But everyone makes a big deal about it because it comes down to the issue of salvation and did this mean anything and how does this work and the nature of the Trinity. And people have gouged their eyes out over this. And it's also a very handy way to declare rebellion is, is the emperor has the wrong understanding of Jesus. This is silly. But what do you have? And a mystery cult probably couldn't have done that. But People also rebel all the time. Like one of the kind of a liberal libtard complaint about Christianity is that it created religious violence in the Middle Ages and intolerance. But first of all, that's wrong. The ancient Greeks quarreled over religion, not like Crusaders did, but you would defend something and they'd want controlled holy sites. There, you know, people find pretexts for all, all the time, aside from a religion like national pride, greed. If you need an excuse, you can find a war goal pretty quick if you're creative enough. So I think that that argument is slightly overblown. It did help to consolidate an us versus them with Islam. Because it was, even though the concept that helped the West get involved, but then the West always turned on them. What's weird is that the Byzantines never had a concept of holy war. They didn't, I took a class on this at UCSD and my teacher emphasized how they didn't have a crusade mentality. Even though they were always parading icons around, they didn't have the full-on crusader, let's, let's purge the, the, the Mohammedan mindset. 
So they weren't using Christianity to its full potential where you have these heresies popping up, but you don't have the crusade mentality. That was a Frankish idea, even though the Pope called for it, that really this is an outburst of the Germanic berserker mindset through the Franks really. But I think that it could have, if they had Western Christianity instead of Orthodoxy, it would have been easier. I think paganism would have made no real difference. It would have been interesting to have, but it, it wasn't there some guy who like re restarted paganism for a while on some island? Well, I mean, uh, Emperor Julian tried to restart it. No, it wasn't uh, Julian. It was some other guy who I think when Byzantium fell, decided he was going to restart uh, Neoplatonic paganism. Are you thinking of Gamistus Plethon? Yes, that's him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have another question here. Uh, rules of reality apply uh, with 25 US dollars. It's very generous. Thank you. This conversation focused on Zadi's fantastic article shows that all of the intellectual vitalities on our side. May we kill Saturn before he eats us and tell the world I am Zeus or Jupiter, brother of Poseidon and Hades. Yeah, I think that's actually quite good. I, I like that line um, from your uh, from your article. Uh, Thanks. Yeah, we yeah. cannot be eaten by the old system. We can't allow... The founding fathers wouldn't want to become Kronos to eat his own children, but that's what we're, we're headed towards. This constitution has become a suicide pact, and we have to be loyal to our brothers, our fellow racial brothers in arms over a dying empire. That's a hard thing to do, but it's necessary. I, I think that's beautiful, actually. Uh, every empire becomes a system that destroys its people. Uh, the first book by Guillaume Fay was called The System that kills the people basically, which is a very, uh, you know, true and horrifying account of, of many imperial machines. It's certainly true of Rome. It was certainly true of Byzantium. After a few centuries in of Byzantium, the, all the Roman lines were extinct basically. Byzantium was ruled by Slavs and Armenians and, and people from, from the Eastern Empire. The Romans were gone. They created a system that liquidated themselves. And they had done that with the Western Roman Empire as well. In, in, in the West, a lot of the old Roman families died out by the first century AD. And they were being ruled by people who were brought in from the four corners of the empire. So the core population was changed by the machine that these people created. That's getting the cart before the horse, right? The, the system should serve the people. The people shouldn't be chewed up and basically be a fuel to keep this system burning. And, but the Romans created a, a Moloch and fed, it, fed themselves to it basically. And by the time Byzantium fell, it bore very little resemblance to the Rome that just created the empire in the first place. So rules of reality apply as sent another five US dollars. Is it fair to say that liberalism is about choosing and traditionalism aristocracy is about valuing? There's a total lack of obligation in liberalism, whereas aristocratic orders require reciprocal obligations and duties. No wonder there's a massive epidemic of anxiety. Is it choosing versus valuing? Um, I mean, Maybe that's the dichotomy. 
it, I, I think the way that I would put it is that traditionalist societies and you know traditional political theory doesn't think that choice is the foundation of everything. When you get to social contract law, you know, political philosophy and so forth, uh, what is that? Well, they don't argue that there was actually a, a founding of society where people came together and, and created documents and stuff like that. But they really are trying to recast society. They're, what, the, what they're trying to do is they're trying to give you this account that if you were coming up with a society rationally, in a, you know, designing a society rationally, this is the kind of society that you would have designed. And therefore you legitimate it with this idea that this would be what you would have chosen if you were ever given a choice. There's something appealing about that, right? But there's also something insidious about it because, well, it's, it's unreal. That's not actually how societies come about. And what, what binds societies together are not the free choices of autonomous individuals. Autonomous individuals sort of come out of societies. They're like a surface phenomenon. There's like a realm within societies that opens up where we behave as if we're autonomous individuals, but we're really not. What we are is we're members of families and tribes. And what binds family, families and tribes together uh, are not choices uh, of autonomous individuals. They, they are the affections that are natural the, to people who are kin. Uh, if, you, if you are born together and reared together and share the same genes, there is an, uh, a natural bond of affection belonging, love of one's own, that uh, is, is, the, is the glue of society. And that, I think, is, is, is more fundamental than choice. In fact, it, the, the whole choice model blinds us to this fact. The idea that you know, we, uh, we can have a society that comes together when a bunch of autonomous individuals make a deal, well, that only can take place within a larger context that that form of interaction can't explain. And that larger context is made possible by natality, by nurture, by rearing up people. And it's bound together by those forms of affection. So this is why uh, Plato and Aristotle talk about love of one's own as the basic political passion. What is love of one's own? Or they talk about thumos which is basically love of one's own. It's a partiality and attachment to what's close to you. And we can understand this in terms of biological similarity, genetic similarity theory. The more genetically similar people are, the greater the harmony between them. This is why identical twins are the most harmonious people around. This is why members of families have an attachment to one another that they don't have to strangers. This is why societies that are very homogeneous genetically, societies where everybody's basically genetically equivalent to a fourth cousin or so, 
countries like Denmark and Iceland are the most harmonious societies and well-governed societies. Those kinds of affections pre-exist any choice. And uh, th that I think is, is, is the foundation of, of a healthy social order. And the idea that, oh, we can just soup up a great society by getting a bunch of random unrelated people together and put them in a marketplace, put them in these institutions, right? Let them make contracts and work with for one another and so forth. That's, that's just madness. That isn't the basis of any form of society at all. That is something that's made possible by the heritage and the human capital of a real society. But if you try and make that the sole model, you will destroy any real society. And the best way to destroy any real society is by saying, well, anybody can be part of our team, right? Let's just have the best people, you know, the people who walk across the Rio Grande. They're the best, right? Uh, well, or you know, Canada actually has this idea. We'll just, we'll just have doctors and lawyers from the third world come. Either way, you are undermining the genetic similarity that's the foundation of any healthy society. Yeah, I think of one of the, the essence here is, is change and not like a reformist change, but being able to just be calm and let things be like, as much as the Beatles were subversive, let it be, let it be. It's a song, it, there's a good meaning behind that. Like they always have to mess stuff up. I think uh, Julius Evla talked about Chinese philosophy where he said, he who acts Mars, he who does not act is not ruined and thus achieves. And these people are always in a state of becoming that becomes the stealth thing become. And this is, you know, it's par for the course of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. It's evident in the transgender phenomenon, which is all about choosing stuff instead of just being happy how you were born and dealing with the cards you were played and being the best man or the best woman or a different type of man or woman than, you know, they always have to they have like 30 different pronouns to choose from. Like, are you out of your mind? And it's always about ch like changing stuff, like changing demographics. Like what's wrong with Poland? Why do we have to import foreigners? Why can't we just leave things how they are? And kind of going back to Christian Seeker's article about futurism, it it's true that sometimes you do need to have stuff and change and radicalism, but oftentimes what has stood the test of time has stood the test of time for a reason it works. So the burden, just like in law, the burden is on the moving party to prove why this is better. And sometimes it's a very high burden. Like the burden to, to, to change the demographics of a country to fill with racial foreigners, that is extremely high. In fact, maybe it's, I think it's so high that nobody can actually surpass that barrier and justify it and carry their, their burden. And it's all this other stuff. If you want to change it, you have to you, you can't just leave well alone. You have to desegregate the schools for reasons, even though nobody was that unhappy. And it's like, from now I admit I'm a radical. I want to change society, but I'm this way be, not because I'm inherently a, a rabble rouser or someone who wants to cause problems. I've been forced to be this way because I wasn't left alone. I'm one of those people who wanted to read books and play video games. And you have made me a, a, a radical because you wouldn't let me do that peacefully. And that's why I want to have a national divorce. It's not because I'm inherently a revolutionary and I'm looking to redraw maps for fun. If I have an itch for that, I play a video game like Hearts of Iron 4 and get it out there. It's because I have no choice. I've been forced 
to be revolutionary, while these people are inherently revolutionary and troublemakers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the libertarian starts out wanting to be left alone, and then he becomes a radical when he realizes that these people are never going to leave him alone. <laughs> and therefore, he has to take up arms uh, to uh, just be left alone. Uh, and once you uh, take up arms to be left alone, well, you might as well complete the job and you might as well create a new social order where you're free of the forces that have have made a mess of things. Uh, th that's sort of how you go uh, down the libertarian to, I don't know, racial nationalist pipeline. Uh, we have a couple more articles that we promised we would talk about. I want to talk a bit about Jim Goad straining to care about this year's election. David, what did you think of that? Are you with Jim? Are you just going to sit out this election, be bemused? by it or are you going to vote for one side are you going to actually vote yes. are you going to, are, okay why 100 yes i'm going to vote for vega because he's the most radical i want to reward radicalism because one of the problems that we have is that is the political agency of politicians i'm not going to make excuses for their treason and their lackluster performance but there is a reason why they behave they do private's blackmail and bribery the problem is that they aren't rewarded when they were radical. There were decades where someone who was radical would have been shut down. People wouldn't have liked it. So we need to give, on one hand, we need sticks, like in the Groyper Wars and all that, to bully these people. But we should also have carrots, because that's the best way to get someone to do what you want. You you punish them when they mess up and you reward them when they're good. In many ways, these, you just treat them like dogs. I mean, you know, if this is how politicians behave, they behave like pets, I'll be, treat them like a pet. Now, Vivek is actually, I don't want to compare him to a pet. He's actually pretty good. But he said he wants to boss the ATF and the FBI. I'm all for that because, for a number of reasons, but I'm going to vote for Vivek. Because, first of all, in California, I, my vote doesn't matter, so I can vote forever I want to. It's very liberating. But by doing this, I signal that these policies are popular. They're viable. In fact, they're very electorally viable and not doing them should be electorally, electorally unviable. And that's how it is. And this will also give Trump the ability to the confidence and also the pressure. He's very prone to pressure. So you just have to pressure him. Just keep, we cannot go home after this election. I think we've learned our mistake from last time and we're going to have to keep our people very involved in politics. We cannot go home. But before that happens, we can still pressure him. We need to give him a strong electoral mandate, both in the primaries by supporting Vivek and also when he gets into office, a supermajority. That way he can actually go DEFCON 3 on the liberals, maybe become the, the Sola that the left pretends that he is. If he has a slim margin, he won't do that. He needs to be given a supermajority so that he can be brave and pressured to act like this. Now, I admit, like, sometimes we do have to basically walk away and tank it. Like, there is a, an argument for them in the midterms or 2020. But no, I'm going to stay involved. I'm not going to simply hand my vote over. Like I said, I'm using it intelligently via Vivek. And if Vivek becomes weak, I'll just vote for Jar Jar Binks because that's all the respect democracy deserves. But no, I'm going to definitely vote. And we, as much as, as horrible and just what a embarrassment Trump was, he can still be useful for us. We just have to wield him like the left. And here's a big thing too. Trump isn't blackmailed. 
I mean, Vivek isn't either, but all these other candidates, they're either, if not blackmailed, they're in the pockets of the Zionist lobby. Like, Ron DeSantis, I don't believe he's blackmailed. But he is, they, the regime has used carrots to make him a little Zionist puppet. He is basically drowning in carrots of donations from the Zionist lobby. He has a very close relationship with the Jewish community in Florida, which he relies upon. So he's not a good fit right now. So no, I'm going to to stay engaged despite all my issues. And politics is the art of the possible. And at some point, we have to mean this in reality. I want to make some predictions for this year. I believe that Donald Trump is going to get the nomination. I believe that he's going to stay out of jail. And I believe that he's going to cruise to a victory and that the margin of victory will be so marked, so significant that although the left will do everything in, the in their power to cheat, they will be so far behind that it won't be plausible for them to steal the election. And then he'll get into office and then God knows what he'll do. It's impossible to predict really because he's just a unprincipled egomaniac. However, if he just spends four years beating up people and avenging himself upon the political establishment, that wouldn't be such a bad thing because God knows they all deserve it. They all deserve to suffer. Every last one of them deserves to suffer. And if Trump just spends his time tormenting them, legally, of course, uh, as long as it's legal, but tormenting these people, firing them from their jobs, taking away the things that they love, making them wish they were dead, etc. That sounds like justice to me. He, he'd be doing good things for the wrong reasons. I don't believe that Trump will save America. I just don't think he's a serious enough man. I don't think he would know how to save America if he wanted to save America. I do think Trump can be a force for chaos uh, in the system and help break the system down more. I think he can be a metapolitical gain, even though he politically wasn't very good at uh, cashing in on the, his election the first time around. Uh, I, I still maintain that Trump's greatest achievement was the day that he announced his candidacy when he basically threw out the gentleman's agreement not to talk about globalization and immigration. Uh, he uncorked a bottle. It was Pandora's box. This is why they hate him so much. They know that if somebody comes along and pulls the stopper out of that bottle, that they're never going to get it back inside. And they're not going to get it back inside. They are going to have to deal with nationalism and populism for a long time to come, and they may never get it under control. And no matter who is ultimately the instrument of this establishment's destruction, it is going to come sooner because of Donald Trump. He unleashed forces that the system cannot survive and it cannot contain. And so these are good things that he's done. Like I said, I don't think that we're going to get a administration, a president who can fix America. I just don't think the system will allow that. Not because it's sinister and 
conspiratorial and they're, they're in control and they'll never let it happen. Although there are lots of forces that would try to prevent things like that by hook or by crook, but simply because it's, it's incompetent and that nobody can fully control it uh, at this point. And that's, uh, you know, which means that no one can get a handle on it and get it turned around and get it going in the right direction anymore. I just think America's beyond political recall and that uh, Trump can be, is certainly the better candidate from the point of view of, of replacing it, getting, getting something better to come along. I wish that weren't the case. I wish there were enough serious men in America. I wish there were enough far-sighted people in America uh, to, to fix the country within the present political system. I'm not betting on that. I think Trump, though, is the better choice from the point of view of the post-American uh, alternative. So whether you're a patriotic American who thinks he can fix America or whether you are like me and I don't think he would even try to fix America, but even if he tried, I don't think he could do it. Uh, I still think he's a better candidate. So for me, Trump is the only reasonable alternative and I'm going to root for him. And uh, that's about all I can do. I will, I will cast my vote. I will defend him from stupid attacks and things like that. This is the thing about Jim's article that I don't agree with. Uh, okay, yeah, you can be pretty much assured uh, that he's not going to be able to fix the thing. Okay, I can agree with that. But are you going to sit by idly? when these people say absolutely crazy and stupid ass things about Trump. I, There's I can't also imagine. a huge issue of political prosecution. If there, if this, if Biden actually gets into, stays in power or his cabinet, they're going to be emboldened to go to really to become like the Soviet union union at that point. Like, why not? They get away with this. What would, would get away when they think they can get, get away with more? And two, Henry Ford says, if you think you can or you can't, you probably can. I, I'm very disillusioned with Trump with his first term without carrying out the border wall. But he has said he wants to do mass deportations. Now, there's a strong argument that he is either lying about it or he will lose his will to do so. However, if we get all blackpilled and become the Eeyore right and say, no, oh, it's doomed to fail. It's doomed to fail. Now, maybe it's still doomed to fail if we fight hard, but it's at least there's a possibility. And I think we can pressure him to try to do at least some deportations, therefore buying us demographic time, very precious time, while radicalizing people in the process. So we, it's a win-win. And this isn't just wishful thinking on my behalf. I have proof of this. So towards the end of the Trump presidency, there was an initiative by the College Republicans United, which is the based version of the College Republicans. They're like the Fuentes camp or adjacent. They were able to pressure an end to the green card program. And this, I think, allowed thousands of, this prevented thousands of green cards from being renewed or granted or something. I forget the details, but it was an actual finite, pragmatic policy solution that they got through. They got actual policy and people always say, well, oh, you're going to make policy and they mock it. No, they kept non-whites out of our country. This was a small victory, but remember, it was a bunch of college Republican chapters going rogue with this open letter. 
and they were based around the Arizona chapter. But guess what? If they can do it, what can more people do? Especially if people are more radical and woken up and more mobilized. People need to get out of this Eeyore mindset that nothing cool ever happens. If we, nothing will happen in, with that mindset. At least if you, if you try, you have a chance. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I do think that white people are going to survive and flourish again on the North American continent and around the world. How that's going to happen is as yet unclear to me because there are too many contingencies. I can't predict my own life, right? Much less the course of history over the next 20 or 30 years. But there are many, many roads that we can take if we have the political will and the imagination to do it. Uh, I do know that given the choices that are being put before us in 2024, that Trump would definitely be the best candidate. He's, he's going to get the nomination. And if he's up against Biden or any Democrat, he would definitely be the better candidate. Fewer bad things will happen under Trump than under the Democrats. There will, there will be millions of people flooding across the borders. There will be a slowdown in the Great Replacement. And that is important. And, and that's one reason why I supported him in 2020 even though I didn't have any hope that he would do the positive things necessary to reverse the great replacement, at least he was going to, he would slow it down, give us time to do something about it, whether that's within the current system or in a post American system. Again, I, I don't know, but we need time and slowing down the great replacement is is an important thing so yeah i i will definitely give him that that would be a positive thing that he could do a positive thing he could do for white people in north america and and just by accident he will do lots of good things that are that are positive for white people in north america one of the things that he did quite by accident was simply be the victim of a obvious witch hunt by the establishment and by the media, they were discredited massively by simply going after Trump in an unjust way. That, that's a good thing. It wouldn't have happened without Trump. And that's a good thing. He, Trump being around causes the system to discredit itself. Uh, and and that's, that's positive because the quicker this system weakens and fails, the quicker we can move on to a better alternative. So anyway, I, I, I am not going to sit, sit idly by. And in fact, I've, I've asked all the countercurrents writers to be writing more topical political commentary this year. Why? Well, because more people will come to countercurrents in 2024 because it's an election year. We saw this in past election cycles. It causes people who are normally tuned out of politics to tune in. Some of them find their way to us, especially if we're talking about what's happening. And we don't want to just get their eyes glancing at a couple of our articles. We'd like to keep them around and convert them. And we will have more converts this year than last year because we'll have more traffic and that's a gift of this election cycle. So I'm not going to sit it out if, if only for selfish reasons of traffic and converting people to white nationalism. 
but also because I, I can't help but be engaged by this because I do think important things are at stake. And also I, I will be goaded to defend Trump just because of the irrational and unjust attacks that will be uh, launched against him. Even though he might not deserve my support, he'll end up getting it just because these people will behave far more odiously than Trump ever could possibly behave. So yeah, politics is a dirty game and a lot of politicians treat us like pawns. Trump definitely treated the J6ers like pawns when he went off to the golf at Mar-a-Lago. Well, we have to treat him like a pawn. That's the game. That's a, it's a dirty game, but it's life. It's reality. Yeah. Yeah. We need to use Trump and not let him use us. That was a theme back in 2015 at Countercurrents. You can, you can scroll back through the archives. Uh, that was how we looked at him back then. That's how we look at him today. He can advance white interests, even though it's no part of his intention. And, uh, this is why I'm going to be rooting for the guy. I'll vote for the guy. I'm certainly going to defend him against unjust attacks. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for him when he does wrong things or stupid things. Uh, you know, why, why would I do that? I'm not going to do 4D chess rationalizations and all that kind of stuff. I know what we're dealing with here. I don't have any illusions about Trump. But I'm going to be for Trump without illusions and without apology again in 2024, which was how I, I phrased my support in 2020. Uh, for Trump without illusions and without apologies. It's, it's just the best choice. Okay, we have about 20 minutes, and I want to talk about this piece by Spencer Quinn. Really, it's the second of two pieces by Spencer Quinn about the Jews moving right and what should we do about this. David, do you wanted to uh, lead off on this. We we tried to get Spencer to come on the show, but he just couldn't make it today. So yeah. I don't want to do him justice, though. This is a one of those issues where it's difficult to talk about because people tend to misconstrue what you say. And you always have to, it's one of those things where it's obnoxious where I feel like one of the refreshing things about the original alt-right is that we didn't have to do all these prefaces like, well, I'm not saying all Blacks are criminals. But with this stuff, people get very touchy. They, they, they say, well, you want to work with the Jews or we should just do nothing. And it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So it's a thorny thing. Yes, the Jews are moving right. But my whole take on this is that we can't really trust them. And I would say let them fight. I, I think we should either – we should not ally with either side because both sides are perfidious. If I can add in some more, there, this is like Warhammer 40k. I know that the left uses Harry Potter to argue by analogy, but in Warhammer 40k, the, the general policy is is you have to dislike all the enemies of mankind. Don't work with them because they'll just betray you. Well, it's kind of the, the, th the thing here. They'll both use us. They don't really like us. We can certainly encourage our enemies to fight each other and do that, but we should have no delusion that these people will ever really like us. And that's not a Wignat Kate. I'm not being, it's just a fact of life. The, these people always betray us and it usually goes nowhere. So yes, we should encourage infighting between different factions of the left, factions of the left. 
and there's an so yes I, I think we should encourage that like we should encourage deportations of muslims under any pretext the other issue though is not to get third world there's this whole issue of like working with the jews or thinking they won't betray us these people ran a blackmail ring with jeffrey epstein don't trust them don't defend their interests and two i also with the muslims there there isn't i side i side with the palestinians they're being genocided they're the enemies of the people who ran a blackmail ring in America. I also don't want a single immigrant here because they won't like us because of America's support for Israel. And I'm also not a third worldist. I'm not going to put on a headscarf. And, you know, I think Greg Conte, I, I like his content, but he gave a speech in Arabic and, and it was just, no matter how much you like the Palestinians, this isn't going to get a lot of traction amongst Americans. There's a practical issue here. And I think siding against regime in Israel, there is a, a danger of sliding into third worldism. I know Fuentes has said, and others have said that third worldism is basically, when people say that they're basically carrying water for the Jews in Israel. Half the time that's true. The other half, there is a real issue of people kind of going native and all that. So it's it's danger, it's this swamp you have to try to navigate and it's just almost impossible. So I would just simple, simplify this down as encourage chaos between our enemies, take advantage of anything possible. That's another thing too. These are usually very theoretical arguments. So give me something real. And that's kind of going back to other issues. We don't have any policy making power right now. We have very little. So we need to basically take advantage of whatever we have and not get wrapped up by this. And I'm pretty sure people will somehow misconstrue, misconstrue what I've said and be creative. You're saying, well, we should do this, we should do that, and it's impossible. When we have, and it's ridiculous yeah. because it's about an issue we have no real policy power. So I just say, mistrust everybody, exploit every every opportunity, and don't ever think that the the the, the Palestinians or the Israelis are ever your friend. Yeah, uh, there's there's a certain pragmatic question that I I. I always come back to when people talk about, well, alliances. Nobody makes alliances with powerless people on the margins of society who exist primarily on the internet. It's not a question of allies uh, in this case. Uh, Spencer used the word allies, and I think that was a misstatement, which he later corrected. But I, 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 the, the truth in what he's saying is simply this. It is happening that certain Jews are moving to the right on certain issues. Uh, let's go back even further before Gaza, right? Uh, there are certain Jewish figures that have done things that I applaud. They have used their Jewish insider powers to move the Overton window or take courageous stance. And I'm thinking of two people. I'm thinking of the the odious, the ludicrous Yoram Hazoni. Yoram Hazoni, who uh, you know, sponsored this idea of national conservatism through an institute uh, called the Edmund Burke Institute, which is based in Jerusalem and basically shares the same staff as the Theodore Herzl Institute in Jerusalem. Uh, obviously, this is a Zionist op. Uh, it, it couldn't be more obvious. It, it, it's not a strained and paranoid interpretation to, uh, to, to say this, but he's a Zionist and he is also promoting nationalism in the West. 
Why is he doing this? Well, the, the general Zionist attitude is nationalism for us and internationalism for them, right? Uh, they have a live and let die philosophy, not a live and let live philosophy, right? Uh, we get unity, you get diversity. We get nationalism, you get globalism. He's actually trying to be consistent about this. Now, what he's also doing, because he just can't help himself, is gatekeeping. And so the first National Conservatism Conference, uh, I tried to apply to uh, attend. And I got a letter from Yoram Hazoni telling me, no, I can't come. Uh, I kind of respect him for actually writing to me. Uh, I know he just couldn't help himself, right? They, they just fall into this gatekeeping thing. Uh, they want to keep racists far, far away, especially anti-Semites, right? Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's what he's doing. But he's still moving the Overton window in the right direction by promoting nationalism in conservative circles in the West. And he's still actual, and he's still actually being consistent about nationalism. He's being a universal nationalist, except for the Palestinians, of course. Uh, anyway, so Yoram Hazoni is doing that. Um, what should our reaction be? I think we should, it should be, it's my reaction. Our reaction should be my reaction, which is to praise him for doing something good, identify what the limits are, uh, what the catch is, right? And just be pleased that a Jew with a huge amount of Jewish insider capital is doing something useful a change, right? Another example is Amy Wax. Amy Wax, very courageous woman, talking about human biodiversity, criticizing leftist nonsense, platforming Jared Taylor at University of Pennsylvania. She's taken a great deal of flack. She's done good things. She's used a, a lot of her capital promoting things that I, uh, I like. And so what's my reaction to it? I can grateful to Amy Wax. Thank you, Amy Wax, for your service. I don't mistake her for somebody who's ultimately on my side, but she's helping. She's helping reduce the drag, the headwinds, the resistance to our kinds of ideas. That's a good thing. Now, what's happening after Gaza is a lot of Jews are hysterical because they want to be able to genocide the Palestinians uh, without any criticism whatsoever. And they discovered that the POCs that they have lovingly promoted for generations at the expense of white people disagree with them. Those ungrateful bastards, they don't know their place. People like this gay woman uh, at Harvard, they don't know their place. They didn't realize that they are subalterns in a Jewish-dominated system, that they're simply there because a white male might have been president of Harvard. And so this black woman has to be president of Harvard instead, unless it's a Jew. Now it's a Jew, right? Uh, they couldn't rely right. on the black That's woman, so they had to have a Jew. Yeah. I forget how many Ivy Leagues there are, but the supermajority are now run by Jews. Yeah, it's massive. Massive overrepresentation. Anyway, um, so uh, there's this fight between. Jews and people of color. First of all, there's a massive falling out in Europe and America between Jews and Muslims. Jews and Muslims 
generally work together against the white majority in every country that they're in. They are now at daggers with one another. And that's good. Why? Because you, the way that we win is when our enemies fight one another and are not fighting together against us. That helps us strategically. That makes it better for us. Uh, and so I'm glad. I'm glad they're falling out. Uh, there's a falling out between Jews and Muslims. <clears throat> Beyond that, Jews and people of color are unified against white people in the West. Uh, and that coalition is falling apart. That's a great thing. I applaud that. Uh, now, am I going to say that we should let Jews run our movement? Or should I, I have Jewish writers writing at countercurrents now? No, that's completely crazy. Uh, first of all, they're not going to do it. There's nothing in it for them. Uh, second, uh, there's nothing in it for me. Uh, and, and, you know, th that's not what's implied here. Uh, I, I simply think that what we have to recognize is there's an opportunity that's being given us uh, by this uh, conflict within the, uh, the enemy coalition. And that's a good thing. And the people in, uh, in the movement, and there are people in the movement, they, they, they won't acknowledge this for some reason. They're like spoiled, rotten little kids who won't eat their spinach. You know, and it's like, I just want to tell them to shut up and eat their spinach. Uh, shut up and acknowledge the fact that actually something is good is happening here uh, and stop trying to, you know, look a gift horse in the mouth, basically. Uh, but there, there are people in the movement who basically they think that they can win by cargo culting spoiled, sullen black people. Well, right? they, they expend vast amounts of time and energy chewing the cusp and gossiping about is it good or bad? And that's a very passive peasant mindset. Like, is this person acting in good faith or bad faith? Is this good or bad? An aristocrat would ask, how can I exploit every advantage here and how do I mitigate that? Exactly. And the exactly. first question is only has any relevance at all, only in so much as it relates to the second question. And this really shows that these people don't know how to rule. They haven't studied history. They have a wrong, a bad mindset. And they need to get real. They need to start thinking strategically and they can't think strategically. Don't be a leader or just chill out and let other people lead you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's very well stated. It doesn't matter what their intentions are. What matters is what we can make of it. Uh, we do not expect these people to save us. Uh, we're not passively waiting for a savior. Uh, we are pleased that these opportunities are presenting themselves to us, and we need to figure out what we can do about them. And uh, the, the thing about Spencer's article that I don't like is he seems to be saying more than just, you know, shut up and eat your vegetables and smile, uh, you know, and, and just be pleased that there's an opportunity being presented us. Uh, you know, he wants to say, well, maybe we should be more welcoming of this. Well, yes and no. Uh, we've already got this covered, Spencer. We've got Jared Taylor. We've got Jared Taylor, who's welcoming of Jews, right? Uh, we've got the good cop already. 
and we've got the bad cops. And it, it's not sensible or pragmatic or meaningful to say that the bad cops, maybe they should lighten up and do some good cop stuff because, well, A, no one's going to believe it. And B, uh, good cops and bad cops work well together. Uh, and, and we just need to keep up the pressure. And, and uh, honestly, therefore, I, I don't believe that we should lighten up in the least on the on the jq i mean we should acknowledge that there are some good jews i've always said that there are they they really vehemently dislike the bad ones because they have to deal with them all the time yeah 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 there are some good jews there but they're but they're just not enough they're just not enough good jews uh and therefore you know the net effect of these people in our societies is has put us on a collision course on a catastrophic tragic course and we we simply uh, we simply have to part ways it's a it's a toxic marriage it's a toxic marriage with a few happy golden moments in it uh those would be the good jews uh but it's a toxic relationship that needs to be severed uh no bad marriage is ever 100 bad or it never would have happened to begin with uh but we you know, we, we have to recognize that ultimately what we need to do is separate. That's the reasonable position on the JQ. Uh, uh, that's the position that I take. He says, don't go out and vandalize menorahs. Sorry, I'm, you know, that's never been our position. I know it's happening on the Harvard campus. It's never been something that I've, uh, I've uh, stood for. I don't believe in being mean to Jews, killing Jews. Or it plays like into that. their victim narrative. Yeah, yeah. They love to uh, be the victim. They have what we call an anime main character syndrome where they think the whole world revolves around them. Yeah. And for them, it's always persecution. So no, don't do yeah. that. That's usually let them and their pets do that to themselves. Like, hey, Rabbi, yeah. what are you doing? Don't yeah, yeah. Do this. Yeah. They no, want I, to be persecuted. They, they live off of it. Yeah, it strengthens them. I don't believe in any of that anyway. Uh, none of the people who follow me believe in that anyway. Uh, and the kind of people who do believe in that, you know, the, the blood tried people, the crypto exterminationist types, people like that, they're never going to be, li- they're not going to be reading that. Uh, they're not going to be listening to it. Well, well I, I was told that one of the exterminationists actually did hate read uh, 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 Spencer Quinn's articles and rant about it on some dwindling podcast network, the name of which escapes me. Uh, so some of these people are incensed by this uh, uh, and think it's a gauntlet thrown in their face. But, you know, we're not going to improve these people. And if these people disappeared, there would be new ones invented, either by the federal government or NGOs like the ADL, because they it's serve like, the purpose of the regime. Which is dumb because it's like wignattery is like neoconservatism and communism has it apparently real wignattery and exterminationism has never been tried just like real communism has never been tried and they keep trying to use a failed strategy that has always failed and it alienates white people and it's ridiculous this goes nowhere yeah i i have a question here from friedrich our friend friedrich writes in with 10 us dollars thank you greetings not necessarily a question just a comment on the wonderful havens articles all the issues you raised are true and were more or less understood by our people a while ago. I'll take some work to reverse. It'll take some work to reverse that. 
when all the culture has been attacking these values for so long, best wishes. Well, thank you very much. Let's just quickly see if there are any other questions or comments here or donations that have come through. Uh, very much appreciate any help you send our way. Any thoughts you send our way? Any thoughts you share? Yeah, I am not seeing anything. Uh, and we're basically, we're basically at two hours. Uh, so David, um, do you want to say any final words about the Spencer piece? I would issue? say no, just focus on what is pragmatic, what you can do and don't get caught up in theoreticals. In fact, yeah. a good, a good, one of the things from constitutional law is that before a Supreme Court hears a case, there needs to be an actual issue, an issue that can't be moot, it can't be theoretical, it has to be sharp and concrete. That's the way I look at this stuff. There needs to be an actual issue. So people get, they argue themselves into pretzels or try and get the exact right take on some theoretical rule instead of trying to get a ruling and just on something concrete like, okay, a Jew hosted Jared Taylor, how do we use that? this happened? How do we use that? It's always theorizing and trying to create this like doctrine, this, ex this perfect all expansive doctrine, which is just stupid. I think it's best just to focus on individual incidents and just be flexible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. I, I don't think there's any pragmatic change, uh, that comes out of what he's saying. Uh, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, Jared Taylor will be the gentleman and uh, be receptive to them. Uh, I'm going to continue politely saying, no, I don't think this is going to work and we need to have a divorce. Jews will keep pursuing their interests and their interests are now openly in conflict with Arabs and Muslims and other and, and colored people who are parts of their ruling coalition. And this is a huge opportunity for us. That's going to continue to be an opportunity for some time to come. Uh, I think that we've got this covered uh, within our movement. We've got people who are uh, receptive to, to Jews and we're and willing to work with them. And we've got people who are going to keep up the pressure. Uh, we, of course, stand for keeping keeping up the pressure for separation in the politest way possible and envision separation in a completely humane and orderly fashion uh, through ethno-nationalism, uh, through Aliyah, through uh, making the Zionist dream true and real. That's, that's how I uh, envision all this. Uh, that's the happy ending that I would like. Uh, to this very, very bad and abusive marriage. Uh, we're, we're in a marriage with an abusive partner. Jews are abusive of Gentiles like us. And we need to stop clinging to our abusers and we need to firmly demand that we separate because we want to pursue happiness. And we deserve to be happy. We deserve to be happy. We deserve to have lives of our own. Uh, we can no longer live in a situation where we have to revolve uh, around uh, in, in every way around these uh, abusive people. So that, that's how I look at it. I think that we have many opportunities because of this. And this Jewish move to the right, uh, quote unquote, 
this pre presents opportunities uh, to us that we fully intend to exploit without giving up any of the advantages that we might already have, especially the advantage of being truthful and honest about the JQ. That's the greatest advantage that we have. And we're not going to pull any punches uh, in, in that one bit. So anyway, folks, I want to wrap up. David, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I think in the future, what we will do is we will have these shows and we're going to try and make sure that we can get as many of the authors as possible to come on and talk about their articles. Uh, because again, we, we really believe in the written word at Countercurrents. We are not podcast nationalists. Uh, we're not, uh, we're just not, uh, we're not eight hour live stream nationalists. Uh, we are written word nationalists, but we need to accommodate the fact that many people like the, the, the immediacy and the, the, of the, the feeling of listening to voices and, and being in a conversation with somebody, even if it's very one-sided. And so we want to do that and not depart from our strength, which is in the written word, both the printed word and online. And so we're going to figure out ways of, of, of bringing these two things together better in 2024. Sounds like a plan. I can't wait. Yeah. So next week, a week from today on Countercurrents Radio, we're going to have our first book club episode. And that is going to be on The Cultured Thug, which is our fifth collection of essays by Jonathan Bowden, essays and speech transcripts by Jonathan Bowden. So if you would like to participate in that in an informed way, you've got homework. I'm giving you a homework assignment. Get a hold of the culture thug. Now, there are two ways you can do that. Actually, three, three ways you can do that. The first way you can do it, if you want to be super cheap, is just read all the contents of it on countercurrents. It's all there anyway, right? The second thing you can do if you are a paywall member or if you simply sign up for the paywall or if you simply subscribe to our mailing list, we'll give you an ebook version of The Cultured Thug so you can read it and be prepared. And the third way of doing it is to buy the physical book, but you got to do it quick because you've got not very much time. The quickest way to get it, therefore, would be to order it from amazon.com if you've got Amazon Prime because you can get it in a couple of days, generally. Uh, they do stock it now. So uh, I hate to send people to Amazon, but that might be the most convenient way of you getting it. But there are many ways that you can be prepared for this. The people who will be on the show are me, James O'Meara, Margot Metroland, and Catherine S. Uh, James helped with the index of the book. Uh, Margot reviewed the book and Catherine, she's one of our culture vultures. Uh, she covers literature uh, and history uh, at Countercurrents. And so she's an ideal person to discuss it. So the four of us are going to discuss the book. I'm the editor of the book, so I'll be discussing it. Unfortunately, Jonathan's been dead for more than 10 years now, so we can't have him on the show. Uh, after that, the second of the book club streams will be in February. It'll be the first Saturday of February. And that will be about my book, The Trial of Socrates. Uh, I've asked Mike Maxwell to join us. 
who's with Imperium Press. Uh, Mark Gullick will join us. I'm trying to get uh, a fourth person to be on board. And we're going to talk about that book. I'm very proud of that book. I would love to have a really good conversation with you all. Uh, that book is on sale now, and you have plenty of time to get a hold of a physical copy. So do that. In March, the book club will be on Sexual Utopia in Power by Roger Devlin. He will be joining us. And in April, the book club book will be another one of my books, my new anthology against imperialism. We haven't figured out who's going to join us for that, but you've got months to, to read up uh, and, and be prepared for that. And all of those books are on sale and those uh, that the sale lasts for another week. So please, folks, uh, if you want this to work, uh, plunge in and make it work. Uh, we'll do our part, but we would love to have a very engaged audience. Uh, and we think that you'll get a lot more out of the books by doing this, and you'll get a lot more out of the shows by preparing as well. So this is an experiment, and uh, we look forward to having you back, your homework done, your questions ready. There's no, there's no written assignment, but jot down a couple questions and join us next week for the next episode of Countercurrents Radio. Thank you all. Thank, uh, thank you for the uh, donations. Thank you our, for the moderation. Our moderators have done wonderful work. And of course, all of you wonderful listeners out there, we will be back 